Our scripture reading is from Psalm 119, beginning in verse 89 and continuing on to verse 96. Remember, as I read and as you hear, this is the word of God. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 89. This is the Lamed section. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Father, once again, thank you for your word. Minister to us through it by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Psalm 119 is not a biographical psalm in the strictest sense. It's not set out in chronological order, although it does give a full-orbed picture uh, of the life of this believer, this godly man. And there is a sense in which, while it is not chronological, certain sections do seem to follow, if not a chronological, at least a logical order. And we see something of that progression here when we come to this Lamed section. You'll remember the previous section, the Kaf section, beginning in verse 81, uh, we saw the psalmist at perhaps his lowest moment. He describes himself as being almost in despair. He, he's surrounded by enemies. He has nowhere to turn. There are pits all around him. And, and the confusion that he sees sinks deep into his heart. In the midst of it, of course, he's trusting the Lord, but, but he is at a low ebb in that moment. And it's interesting because the very things that the psalmist cries out for in that previous section, he cries out for salvation in verse 81. He call, cries out for God's faithfulness in verse 86. He calls out for God to preserve his life in, in verse 88. Each of those things that the psalmist cries out for are, in a sense, answered in this section of the psalm. We look at his cry for salvation, and that very word is used in verse 94. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. He, he asks for God's continued faithfulness in verse 86. And in verse 90, he uses that same term and says, your faithfulness endures to all generations. And then he, he asks for the preservation of his life in the midst of, of great difficulty. And in fact, he uses that exact term in verse 93. He says, through your precepts, you have given me life. This section really is the fulcrum on which the whole psalm turns. It comes at the center point of Psalm 119. In fact, verse 89, I think, is really the central tipping point of the whole psalm. And the psalmist says this, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. In the midst of all that he faced, all the difficulties, he declares here with great clarity the fixedness 
of God's word. And that, I think, actually is the first point to be made, the first heading that we should see in this psalm. In verses 89 through 91, the psalmist focuses on the fixedness of the word of God. And again, that's striking because we know that the psalmist wasn't living in a time of ease. The psalmist had, it could not be said of him that he had never experienced difficulty, never experienced suffering. In fact, he's just told us about a kind of suffering he's undergoing that is far beyond what many of us have experienced. And yet he says in the midst of that, Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Now, there are two ideas, I think, that are reinforced by this terminology that he uses. The ESV translates it as firmly fixed. We might say forever, oh, Lord, your word is settled in the heavens. And there are really two ideas that go along with this this declaration of the word of God being fixed, the word of God being settled. The first idea, and I think this is the one that Uh, comes most easily to our mind when we read this, is that the psalmist is declaring here at this center point, this fulcrum of the psalm, he's declaring that that the word of God is is stable, uh, that the word of God is unmoved, that that there is a, a kind of steadiness to the word of God, that the word of God is a kind of rock on which he can lean. It's something solid, something safe, something that he can build upon. That's part of what it means to say your word is firmly fixed. Right there, we should immediately begin to contrast that with virtually everything else in our lives. Those of you who were here last year, remember we looked for some time at the book of Ecclesiastes, and the repeated phrase in Ecclesiastes reminds us that virtually everything we do is a kind of breath that's a merest breath, the writer of Ecclesiastes says over and over again, or sometimes it's translated vanity of vanities. All these things that we pour our lives into, all these things in which we fix our hope, the writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us those things those things are here today and gone tomorrow. Those things are ephemeral. They 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 barely even register in the scale of human history. And even if even if they seem to have some solidity in your own life in the next generation, they may be entirely forgotten. And yet, what's the psalmist saying here? Now, the word of God isn't like that. The word of God is not the merest breath. The word of God is the furthest thing from ephemeral. It is fixed. It is settled. Think about your life. Think about the things that you count on. You count on the fact that you will wake up tomorrow and you'll have good health. But you know, if you think about it, that that's not something you can guarantee. You you think that you have all these friendships and that your life orbits around these friendships and these social connections that you have. But you know, of course, that friends can leave you. Friends can abandon you. Friends can stab you in the back. That's not really settled at all. What about your, your finances? I suppose many seminary students might not resonate with this but 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 for many people of course they're looking forward to to the fact that they have this solid financial footing but you know that's not solid at all all of this is really the merest breath but the word of god the word of god is settled forever this is how isaiah puts it you know these words well the grass withers the flowers fall but the word of our god stands forever or What does Jesus say in that little aside, that little side note he makes? Scripture 
cannot be broken, Jesus says. We know that the scripture is firmly fixed with respect to everything it teaches, everything it declares to us, the history it records, the the moral instruction it gives. All of that is steady. All of that is reliable. You could take all of that to the bank because it's the word of God. We just sang it. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. If you want something you can count on in life, something you can look to, something you know is solid, something you know will last and outlast you, scripture cannot be broken. But I want to say there's actually another implication to this term, firmly translated firmly fixed or settled. Several commentators have pointed out that this word for for settled can also be understood in a kind of martial context or military context. Oftentimes it's used in terms of an an army that is not simply there, but is actually organized for battle. It's it's settled in the sense of being arrayed and, and, and ready to march into battle. And I think, too, that's implied by the way in which the psalmist uses this term. Yes, it's true. God's word is solid. It's immovable. It's reliable. You can bank on it. You can build on it. But it's also the case that that the Bible, the word of God, is arrayed for battle, as it were. It's, It's ready for action, for the action that God intends for it. I was reading recently a, a, a letter that was, it was actually the order of the day that General Eisenhower gave on June 6, 1944. You'll know, of course, that that's D-Day. That's the day in which the Allies were going to invade. And, and they had postponed the invasion because of bad weather for two days. It looked as if there was going to be a little opening, a little window. And, and so the Marines were all there, ready to go. They'd been ready for two or three days. They were, as it were, arrayed for battle. And what Eisenhower said, among other things, he gave a review of the war and the significance of their action. And he said, I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty and skill in battle. And then he said this, as they're arrayed for action, we will accept nothing less than full victory. And that's how he looked at that army that was arrayed. And there is a sense in which, a much greater sense in which we could say the same thing about our confidence in the word of God. It's settled, it's sure, but it also will accomplish what God intends for it to accomplish in the world. It's alive and active. Isaiah says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We can almost imagine. As the word goes forth, the same line being used of it, we will accept nothing but full victory. My word shall accomplish that which I purpose. And of course, Jesus has this attitude to the word of God, this attitude that it is both settled and it is arrayed for battle. Truly, Jesus says, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then he goes on to say this about those who teach the word of God. Whoever does them and teaches them, that is, these words, will be called great 
in the kingdom of heaven. Well, much of what the psalmist says in the rest of this section really builds on that reality. That the word of God is solid. The word of God is going forth in battle. The word of God will accomplish what God himself intends for it to accomplish. And so particularly beginning in verse 92, we will see what difference this makes in an individual life. But before he gets to that in verses 90 and 91, what the psalmist does is he talks about the faithfulness of God by, by showing that God's faithfulness is, is really an extension. Is, it, it, he extends this faithfulness to his people through his word. And then he draws an analogy in verse 91, uh, 90 and 91 by the, with the establishment of the earth. Look at what he says in verse 90. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. Spurgeon puts it this way when he summarizes the teaching of this verse. Every time we set foot on the ground, we may remember the stability of God's promises. Thomas Manton actually has an extended meditation on what is meant by that phrase in verse 90. You have established the earth and it stands fast. And what the significance of that phrase is, I won't read all of it to you, but it's worth summarizing what Manton reminds us of when the psalmist says this. He says, the earth is stable because of God's commands. Second, he says, the earth is stable despite the fact that we can't see visibly that which upholds it. He says, the basic shape of the earth hasn't changed throughout human history. The stability of the earth comes despite the instability of human institutions. Think of all the governments and empires that have risen and fallen through the course of human history. And yet, and yet the earth is basically the same. And he says it, this shows more than just God's stability, but rather his love and justice and mercy and power and wisdom. In other words, what he's saying is all you have to do is look outside to see the faithfulness of God, even in the stability of the establishment of the earth, which stands fast. And then, of course, the psalmist goes on to extend that, not just to the earth itself, but to all the inhabitants of the earth. Particularly, I would think, Plants and animals, which are recorded, whose creation is recorded in Genesis chapter 1. By your appointment, they stand this day. All things are your servants, he says. Well, the Lord is faithful. God's word is faithful. We can count on it. We, we, can, we can see it playing out before our very eyes. And, and I would hope that you could even go further than that. This almost does go further than that. I would hope that you could say, not only do I see the stability and the reliability of God's word played out every time I set my foot on the ground, but I also see the stability of God's word played out in my own life as I see promises fulfilled, as I see provision being made, as I see God's commands over and over again being shown to be true and, and, and good for me. I would hope we could all testify to that, but if not, the earth and all inhabitants of it testify to it for us. Now, if that's true, if, in fact, the word of God is stable and arrayed for battle, God's faithfulness is played out through that living word, and even our embodied existence on 
the globe reminds us of the faithfulness of God, then the question is, how should we apply this personally? And really, this is what the psalmist does from verses 92 through 96. He explains what difference the settledness of God's word, the faithfulness of God's word, the the, 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 the power of God's word has meant to his life. And he mentions four things, I think, and they could be phrased by way of commands. He mentions, first of all, if your word had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Were we to put that in the form of a command or an application, I think it would be this, delight in the word of God. Uh, Because God's word is stable, because God's faithfulness is displayed in and through his word in a profound way in our own lives and even in creation, the psalmist would say, the Lord would say to you, delight in God's word. I want to say that this word for delight is actually a fairly unusual word. It's used a number of times in Psalm 119, in Psalm 119.24, he says, your testimonies are my delight. In verse 77, your law is my delight. Verse 143, your commandment is my delight. And then again in 174, your law is my delight. But it's actually, uh, apart from Psalm 119, a word that's hardly ever found in the Old Testament. However, it is found on two other occasions, and it has to do with God delighting in his people. And Isaiah talks about the Lord delighting in those whom he had chosen, those whom he had elected. And then the book of Proverbs, it speaks of wisdom incarnate, Christ himself delighting in the creation of man. Nonetheless, here, what the psalmist says is that he delights in the word of God. I wonder if that would be said of you. You might say, well, I I obey, I I revere, I, I study. Uh, But the psalmist says, if I hadn't delighted in God's word, I would have died long ago. If I didn't enjoy God's word, I would never have made it. I would never have survived. That's his testimony here. Edward Edmund Calamy says, the word of God is the sick saint's salve, the dying saint's cordial, a precious medicine to keep God's people from perishing in time of affliction. It's a delight to us, and a special delight when everything else is taken away. What do you have left? Well, you take great joy in the word of God. Notice how he's not begrudging God's word. He's not simply hanging on by his fingernails, although I'm sure at times it felt that way. He says, no, actually, actually what was happening in time of affliction was I delighted in the word of God. I have to say that one of the applications of this is you have to know the word of God. This is why it's so important for you to memorize God's word. It's so important for you to teach to your children the word of God. Because in a time of affliction, in a time of affliction, that that should be the delight of our hearts, our great treasure, as everything else is stripped away. The psalmist can testify, and many saints can testify as well, that apart from that, We would have perished in affliction. Delight in the word of God. Verse 93, he adds to this, and I would put it this way and phrasing it in terms of a command, not only delight in the word of God, but remember 
the word of God. Here is how he puts it. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. If you know yourself at all, if you have any kind of self-awareness or honesty, you know how prone you are to forget the word of God. Of course, this command to remember is repeated over and over again in scripture. You remember perhaps most famously Deuteronomy 6, where the Lord says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And, and then he goes on to say this, you, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. In other words, do not forget. Continue to remind one another. Continue to remind yourself of the word of God. It's very easy for us to even sit under the preaching of the word of God and afterwards to close our Bibles. And within 30 seconds before we're even out the door, we've forgotten the word of God. No, but what does the psalmist say? What is his aspiration, his desire before the Lord? I will never forget your precepts because what he knows is this, that in remembering the word of God, the Lord gives life to his people. It's like forgetting to breathe. You don't usually forget to breathe. It's the source of your physical life. that You have to breathe. And if someone were to prevent you from breathing for any length of time, you'd be, you'd be gasping for air, eager for that source of life for your body. Well, the psalmist says it's just like that with the word of God, because, of course, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we remember God's word constantly, lying down, waking up, walking, sitting at the table, frontlets before our eyes. The word of God is the source of our life. There's a kind of insanity to forgetting the word of God. Because after all, all of us would say that if we're in Christ, we've been given life by the Holy Spirit through God's word. We, we know that that was the source of our spiritual birth. And yet how prone we are to forget it. We know that faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. We know that Jesus himself says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That Jesus prays for all of us when he says, I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through your word. We, we know the example of Ezekiel, who's told to prophesy to bones. And as he prophesies to these bones, the word of God is taken by the spirit of God and brings new life. And we know that our spiritual life is due to the word of God. And if we know that, if we know that by them, you have given me life, the only logical, the only reasonable application is to remember the word of God, to, to make every effort to remember, to remind ourselves, to remind others. When you've forgotten the scripture, you are forgetting that which has brought you to life. You are ignoring the voice of Christ himself. But because, of course, we know that when we proclaim the word of God to people, what we are proclaiming is the word of Christ and that Christ himself works through his word to draw those whom he has chosen to himself. You know, 
course, the reformers were so clear on this. Calvin is so clear that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to do the work of God. And when we know that and we we repeat that and, and perhaps we even minister in light of that, and yet in our own lives we forget that. I will never forget your precepts, he says, for by them you have given me life. Third command, because God's word is fixed. He says this in verse 94, I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. Now, of all the phrases in here, this is the one that actually least lends itself to a command. We could say that the command here is seek the precepts of God. But strictly speaking, of course, that's not actually what the psalmist is saying. What the psalmist is saying is that the evidence that he is uh, that he can cry out to God for salvation is because he does seek the precepts of God. He has sought the precepts of God. So we might actually change this to say something like this. If you are seeking the commands of God, if God has transformed your life in salvation, then look to him and to him alone to save you. Because that's really what the psalmist is doing. I am yours, save me. Why do I know that I am yours? Why can I be confident that I'm yours? Well, well, for one thing, and there are several answers we could give, but one answer, the answer the psalmist gives here is, I, I have sought your precepts. I, I, I'm looking to your word for my answers. I'm looking to your word for what it teaches about salvation. And so save me, because I'm one who walks in the word of God. Is your life marked by seeking after the precepts of God? Are you then looking to God and God alone for your salvation? One 17th century commentator put it this way. When we can say to God, I am thine, we plead the covenant which God hath made with us, wherein he becomes our father and our friend. See what a conclusion here is made. In this verse, doubtless thou art our father, and therefore we call to thee for help. You're one who has been transformed by God's Holy Spirit such that you are seeking your salvation, your answers, your leadership in life from the precepts of God. Cry out to God, I'm yours. Save me in whatever circumstance you find yourself. The last of what we could look at as Commands or applications is found in verse 95, and it comes in the midst of hardship. Now, we know it's not too far removed from our minds that the psalmist endures great hardship, although that's not primarily the note he strikes in this section of the psalm. But but here he alerts us to the fact that, that he knows there are those out there who are trying to get him. Verse 95 says, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. The psalmist actually looks at the future and he knows that his life is probably going to get worse and not better. There's no power of positive thinking, no sense that the sun will come out tomorrow, things will be brighter. In fact, he actually says, I know exactly what's happening here. There are wicked men and they're waiting, they're plotting, they're planning to to do me harm. And yet, look at this. In the midst of the diligence of his enemies... In the midst of his complete, clear-eyed understanding that things are getting worse for him and not better as they wait and plot and plan, look at what he says, I consider your testimonies. 
Now, what's he doing here? Well, he's doing what the psalmist so often does, what we see again and again in Scripture. He's remembering what God has done in the past. That's what I think he's referring to when he talks about the testimonies of God. He knows that every step he takes, every day he wakes up, there's a danger, there's a great risk of the wicked who are plotting against him. Ah, but, ah, but I remember how God has worked in the past. I remember the kind of God I serve. I remember what I've learned from this Bible about the wicked who plot against the righteous. What has he learned? What do we learn when we look to the pages of Scripture? Well, we see again and again that God is with his people in the midst of hardship. We see that sometimes God intervenes and miraculously saves his people from the mouth of the lions, from the furnace of fire, uh, from through water that is brought up on both sides of them as Egypt's army is pursuing them. Sometimes he does that. And then we see as well that sometimes God allows his people to be taken into captivity, to be killed. But, but, but even in those cases, the Lord proves himself faithful. And the psalmist remembers those testimonies of God. Uh, tomorrow probably will be worse for me, he says. Tomorrow may be the day when they attack me and take me down. But I remember not that things are going to get better tomorrow, but I remember God's testimonies. I remember who God is and what he does for those whom he loves. Well, of course, in order to do that, you have to know the testimonies of God. They have to be clear in your minds. You have to have learned them and internalized them in such a way that you're looking at your life, even if it looks bleak through the lens of Scripture. Finally, he sums it up in this way in verse 96. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Now, what's he saying here, and how does it fit into the overall thrust of this section. Well, what the psalmist is essentially saying is this. I've looked, I've looked at everything. I've looked inside myself. I've looked outside at the world. I've looked at my friends. I've looked at my enemies. And what do I see over and over and over again? I see that there is a limit to all perfection. When I, when I look inside myself, I see I am a flawed person. When I look at my friends, even my closest, most faithful friends, I see there is a limit. There, there, are, there are things they cannot do. There are things they will not do. There are blind spots that they have. There are weaknesses and sins and struggles. I look out at the world, and whatever community I turn to, whatever place I visit, I see that there, there are problems. You know, this is uh, something that we often say almost in jest that you know if you if you get to a church you might arrive and think it's this perfect place all you have to do is serve on a committee or two and you realize yeah i've i've seen a limit to the perfection of this place and that's true of any relationship you're in any situation you find yourself in it's true of yourself there's a limit to these things but what what about when he turns to the word of god well that's a different story he sees a limit to the perfection of other people, other communities, other situations. But your commandment is exceedingly broad. There was a time in my life in the 
it was a long time ago in the in the late 1990s where I I had the opportunity to travel quite a bit traveled to you know I don't believe in bucket lists I didn't even know what that was at the time but there were a lot of if I had had a bucket list and if I used that kind of terminology there were a lot of things I was able to do a lot of places I was able to visit and I remember very vividly having just come back from a place that was renowned for its beauty that is sort of a remote location that's renowned for the views and the the lifestyle and and all the kinds of things that can be enjoyed there and i returned home after having been there for some time and and when i arrived home i remember very clearly driving along a river that was near my house and thinking to myself oh, i'll take i'll take this view over any view i've i've seen in the last 2 months and there was a certain sense of nostalgia for home in all of that but but that's the kind of sentiment that the psalmist has here he says you know i i've looked at i've looked at everything and, and there is a limit to perfection but then when i come back and i open my bible and i look at the commandments of god oh it just stretches on it's exceedingly broad Forever, O oh Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. You know, J.C. Ryle at a moment in his life was faced with all kinds of scholarly attacks on the Bible. And what he said was this, give me the plenary verbal theory of biblical inspiration with all its difficulties. I accept the difficulties and I humbly wait for the solution. But while I wait, I am standing on rock. Because your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Go and meet new people. Go and serve in a church or in a nation or in a denomination. And you will find a limit to all perfection. Oh, but the word of God. Exceedingly broad indeed. It will keep angering people who love their sin. It will not get old or dull for those who know the Lord. It keeps working. It's stable. And you can count on it even today. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your word. It is for us exceedingly broad and stable in a way that goes beyond our ability to even fathom. Father, we would ask that you would give us a fresh sense of the importance of your word, the value of your word, and in and through it, please show us your son. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen.